and welcome to the Rx Counter, a podcast produced by student pharmacists at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy, where we provide student insight into the pharmacy profession. I'm your host, Emily Steimel, a P2, and today we're going to talk about important lab values and information about them at the counter today. The students here today are Mark Nagel, a P1, Tanner Fry, Carrie Starbuck, Morgan Conan, a P2, and thank you everyone for joining today. So I'm going to start us off with the electrolyte sodium. And uh, sodium is very important in our body for water regulation mostly and volume. And um, the main things we want to uh, prevent are um, large losses in water or sodium that may cause uh, certain uh, diseases like or symptoms of hypotension or shock. Um, some of your more chronic losses may lead to um, some changes in the brain and cause confusion or different irregularities. Um, and so we really want to keep uh, sodium in the normal range of about 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter. And so if we get below 135 milliequivalents per liter, uh, we have what is called hyponatremia. Um, there's many different possible causes of hyponatremia. Um, you could have renal disease that uh, results in the loss of salt or sodium. Uh, some chronic diuretic use may uh, flush your sodium out. Uh, hypoaldosteronism may also contribute to this, as well as um, consistent GI losses such as vomiting or diarrhea and um, losses of sodium through the skin, such as in sweating or in burns. And there's uh, a few um, conditions that are also associated with uh, hyponatremia. A significant one is Addison's disease, and this mostly results in an adrenal insufficiency and extreme fatigue and weight loss. Uh, You can also have ketonuria, which is just ketones in your urine, uh, which is also uh, similar symptoms such as fatigue, uh, dry mouth, and frequent urination. And then you also, um, another important one is uh, SIDH, which is the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. And that's basically an overproduction of ADH and a buildup of fluids in your body, um, as well as uh, too much of the hormone vasopressin. And uh, we do have a couple treatments for these, um, which are our vasopressin antagonists. Uh, one is conovaptin, and the other is tolvaptin. Conovaptin is an IV. Uh, treatment, whereas tolvaptin is your uh, oral treatment. And then another thing we can do is for our kind of like shocks or seizures that uh, may occur is we use anticonvulsants for those. And so looking at the other side of sodium lab values, uh, the uh, excessive amounts of sodium, which are over 145 milliequivalents per liter, Uh, We have what is called hypernatremia, Um, and some generic causes of this may be 
uh, too much sodium in your diet, or it can be caused by some drugs such as birth control, corticosteroids, laxatives, lithium, and NSAIDs, uh, similar to that of ibuprofen or naproxen. And uh, there's a couple of conditions that um, are related to hypernatremia. One is Cushing syndrome, which is where your body makes too much cortisol, and that uh, leads to a lot of weight gain. Another one that you have is diabetes insipidus, which is an imbalance in fluids that leads to uh, some extreme thirst and also extreme urination. And then you also have, uh, uh, oppositely to hyponatremia, you can have hyperaldosteronism, which can also cause high blood pressure. And so uh, some of the treatments for uh, hypernatremia that we may use are furosemide. And then especially in some cases such as diabetes insipidus, we may use desmopressin or vas vasopressin. I'm gonna go next and talk about serum creatinine. So serum creatinine is a common value that's used to measure the function of the kidneys in the body. And creatinine is a waste product of muscle metabolism or breakdown and is filtered out of the blood by the kidneys, hence the reason that it's often used as a measure of kidney function. Um, so normal ranges for serum creatinine are usually between 0.6 and 1.1 milligrams per deciliters in women and 0.8 to 1.3 milligrams per deciliter in men. However, these values may vary with things like age, race, ethnicity, and muscle mass. Low values generally aren't super concerning in terms of serum creatinine, um, but higher values may indicate that there is some kidney damage. And samples for serum creatinine are generally either collected via a venous blood draw or a urine sample. Um, and once serum creatinine is collected, creatinine clearance, which is measured by the volume of creatinine cleared from the body per unit of time or in milliliters per minute, um, is then used to estimate renal function. And there are multiple different ways to calculate creatinine clearance, but the most commonly used equation is the Cockroft-Galt equation, which uses the weight, age, and serum creatinine of a patient to estimate creatinine clearance. And then creatinine clearance is used as an estimate for GFR, or glomerular filtration rate. Uh, it's important to note that creatinine clearance often overestimates GFR by about 10 or 20%, due to the fact that creatinine is actively secreted in the paratubular capillaries. So normal values for GFR are generally somewhere above like 100 or 120 milliliters per minute, and values between zero to 90 milliliters per minute are used to diagnose chronic kidney disease or CKD. Uh, a value of 90 or above may denote stage one CKD, um, anything between 60 to 90 may indicate stage two, 30 to 60 is stage three, 15 to 30 would be stage four, and zero to 15 would be stage five of CKD, and all of that is in milliliters per minute. Um, and stage five CKD is otherwise known as kidney failure. As far as treatment goes for CKD, um, it's not something like an electrolyte imbalance that's necessarily easy to treat with medication. Uh, some of the most common things that you can do if you have kidney disease or kidney damage um, are lifestyle changes that may include diet changes, uh, changes in frequency of exercise. Um, there are some, so in, in cases where um, 
renal damage is caused by uh, changes in blood pressure, you may see like blood pressure drugs uh, dosed. Um, but those are particularly particular cases. There's not like a cure-all in terms of CKD and medication. Um, it's also important to note that many drugs are dosed renally. So if there is uh, kidney damage, you can use the values that you got for your estimate of GFR to help you to dose those drugs. Um, and in severe cases of CKD, really the only treatment options are either hemodialysis or uh, kidney transplant. Okay, so now to move on from that, I'm gonna talk about a semi-related lab value, the blood urea nitrogen test, or BUN, or BUN, whatever you would like to call it. And this is a test that tells you basically how well the kidneys and liver are working. So the liver produces ammonium, which contains nitrogen, and this nitrogen that it produces um, combines with other elements in the body to produce urea, which is basically just a chemical waste product. This urea travels from the liver to the kidneys where it's filtered out and removed from the blood um, and eliminated uh, via the urine. So this lab test can kind of tell you the levels of urea nitrogen in the blood, which gives us an idea of how well the kidneys and liver are working to either produce it or eliminate it from the body. So normal lab values for this is seven to 20 milligrams per deciliter. And um, when interpreting these lab values, low levels usually aren't a cause for concern. They can be seen in severe liver disease, malnourishment, um, or sometimes overhydration, but this test isn't ever really going to be done to diagnose or monitor those conditions. So typically a, a low level isn't too much of a concern, but high levels can be kind of indicating of issues with the kidney or the liver. So it's used when, I mean, a doctor suspects maybe kidney damage or just to evaluate the kidney function, but it can also be used to determine the effectiveness of dialysis if a patient is on dialysis. And again, in combination with other lab tests, um, the BUN can be used to diagnose things such as liver damage, urinary tract obstructions, congestive heart failure, and things like that, but it wouldn't be used alone to diagnose any of those. So I will talk about the next lab value, and it is potassium. So potassium is important electrolyte of the body. It helps regulate um, and maintain fluid and blood volume in the body. The normal potassium level is 3.5 to 5.5 daily equivalents per liter. And so there is hypokalemia, which is low potassium. And some symptoms of low potassium is weakness, fatigue, muscle cramps, and pain. And so there are different levels of severity of hypokalemia. You can have mild, which is 3.0 to 3.5. You can have moderate, which is 2.5 to 3.0. And then severe is less than 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. And so um, some causes of hypokalemia is mostly just lost in the GI tract, um, loss in feces, um, vomiting, 
And so um, some medications that can cause hypokalemia is mostly medications that enhance renal excretion of potassium. So those drugs are like thiazides, um, furosemide, um, can be high dose penicillins, mineral corticoids. And so for treatment, um, if it's between 3.5 and 4, there's no treatment. Um, and then the 3.0 to 3.5, which is the mild, they're going to treat, help treat the underlying cardiac conditions that could have caused it. And then if it's less than 3.0, they're going to treat all patients. So they're trying to get a level greater than 4.0. So for them, for the patient to raise their potassium levels, the preferred route is from dietary sources. And then if so, they can try to do oral therapy if the um, dietary sources don't work. And then they could also do IV therapy, but it's not the preferred. And then you can also add like potassium sparing diuretics, which like could be like spironolactone, which raises your potassium levels. And so hyperkalemia is mostly likely due to renal failure. So potassium is excreted through the kidneys. So people who take too much potassium in their diet have a hard time getting rid of it if they have renal failure. So, and there's also medications that can cause hyperkalemia, which is like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, NSAIDs, and then the potassium sparing diuretics. So the symptoms are pretty similar to like hypokalemia where you have muscle weakness, um, GI motility, um, weakness in general. So with the hyperkalemia, the most concerning thing is cardiac issues because elevated potassium can decrease the resting membrane potential, which can slow the action potential in the heart and it can lead to like rhythm disturbances such as AFib. So fatal hyperkalemia um, is usually seen with greater than 77.5 milliequipments per liter. And some drugs that they use to help remove the potassium is like diuretics, like lupin thiazides. So the final electrolyte, electrolyte that we'll be discussing today is bicarbonate ion. And bicarbonate plays a crucial role in helping the body maintain an acid-base balance and stabilizing a neutral pH. So normal lab values range anywhere from 23 to 30 milliequivalents per liter. And when hydrogen ion levels get out of balance in the bloodstream, Basically, bicarbonate just acts as a buffer to hopefully try and offset that and keep the body out of a state of acidosis. However, when the hydrogen ion levels do get too high, the body enters a state of acidosis and we, as I mentioned, see an increase in the hydrogen ions. And that essentially causes a depletion in bicarbonate ion as the body attempts to compensate and bring the pH back to neutral. So acidosis can be brought on in a variety of different ways. I'll just touch on a few, including metabolic acidosis, ketoacidosis, and respiratory acidosis. So metabolic acidosis essentially occurs when the kidneys can't eliminate enough acid or when they excrete too much base. Diabetic ketoacidosis occurs in people with poorly controlled diabetes, and this happens when the body lacks proper levels of insulin 
and it leads to an imbalance and essentially ketone buildup, which causes acidosis. And then respiratory acidosis occurs when the body begins to build up too much carbon dioxide and is not breathing out enough CO2. So that throws off the balance and causes um, an acidotic state in the patient. Um, and in any patient with acidosis, we can see low bicarbonate levels. And this is indicative of acidosis and may aid in the diagnosis of a form of acidosis. However, further lab workup needs to be done to differentiate what type of acidosis the patient is experiencing. Um, and this one thing that we can measure in a patient that we suspect is having acidosis um, is bicarbonate levels either directly or we can also measure the anion gap, which essentially just calculates um, the difference of sodium ions minus chloride ions minus bicarbonate ions. So what we'll see is an increase in the anion gap if bicarbonate ion is too low. And that can also be indicative of a acidotic state. So the anion gap normally ranges from about 12 to 15 milliequivalents per liter. But in states like diabetic ketoacidosis, we can actually see an anion gap over 20 um, due to that low bicarbonate. So that is another indicator and another uh, lab value that we can sometimes use to tell whether or not a patient is experiencing acidosis, along with some signs and symptoms um, that are hallmarks of metabolic acidosis that include rapid or shallow breathing, confusion, fatigue, and then nausea or vomiting. So if we leave this untreated, um, acidosis can end up leading to organ or respiratory failure and decreased kidney function. Um, and in serious situations, it may even lead to shock or death. So it is really crucial um, for patients experiencing any form of acidosis to get the proper treatment so that they can avoid organ damage and more serious complications. And we're not going to touch on the treatment options too much because it does depend on what type of acidosis the patient is experiencing. So that's another reason that it's really crucial for us to use not only our bicarbonate lab values, but also the clinical signs and symptoms that the patient is presenting with uh, so that we can ultimately determine what type of acidosis they have and treat them properly. That's all the time we have. Thank you everyone for sharing. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time at the RX counter.